Now, you may remember uh, that two weeks ago I shared a conversation that I had with one of the great mentors of my life where we were reflecting on our decaying society uh, like a couple of old grumpy men. And, uh, and he said something about the missing ingredient of our day and age that captured my attention. What he said was that today, in large part, we lack uh, men and women who possess a greatness of soul. And you may remember that as I shared that moment, uh, the sheer poetry of the, that turn of words, that phrase, it became embedded in my, my mind, greatness of soul. And it set me off on a journey of discovery to find out what, what that really means. The fact is, we live in a world where greatness is a familiar term, and, and where we begin to think of greatness through images that seem larger than life. We live in a world that celebrates a cult of celebrity that will elevate men and women to the status of stars and idols. We'll even have shows to find new stars, new idols. And in seeing them, we may be tempted to say, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. And I wonder how I get that way. How does, how does such a person arrive at, at such an, a level? What, what are the ingredients that, are, that, that produce this sort of success? What is their secret I really need to know? And those were the sort of questions that were running through my mind as I set out then on a quest that was actually directed by Jesus Christ and started in Matthew chapter 11, where he pointed to John the Baptist and he said, I tell you the truth, among those born of a woman, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) It's as if with that statement he has swept aside all of their images and he has put a pause on all of their pursuits and has said, look at John the Baptist, he's the greatest. And in looking at John the Baptist, I discovered what I called two weeks ago the model of a, of a great soul. And the closer I looked, the more curious I became because I too have that desire to grow in that direction. And I, and, and I have to believe you do as well to cultivate that greatness of soul, soul that God has breathed within you. And so I suppose... I, 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 It's no secret that I would wonder, how did he get that way? What was his secret? So as I began to sift through all the material in the Gospels, and I was quite surprised to find how much there really was in the Gospels about John the Baptist, I came across the very first appearance of John that that, that arrives in in the third chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 3. As you have your Bibles there, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Because within just three verses... Luke identifies the key, the secret, and the ingredients of greatness. Now, I have to apologize for having this as the passage because all the names that were there, you did a wonderful job. You didn't stumble, and you got them all right, believe it or not. So good for you. But listen to as I I read again in verse 1, Luke making an introduction. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of uh, Judea and Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was the Tetrarch of Abilene. Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, 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 just stop for a moment there. 
Some of you may be tempted to just skim over those verses or even breathe a sigh of relief that you got them right, and, and, you, and you'll stumble as you come across the words. But I want you to take a really close second look because I want you to see what Luke is doing here. In just these two verses, we have one emperor, one governor, three kings, and two priests, and a partridge in a pear tree. You know, it, it, they're all there. And on the surface, it may seem obvious as to what Luke is doing. He's rooting all of this into a distinct moment of time. And we're not talking about mythology here. We're talking about real people in real time. But I want you to dig just a little bit deeper because in this introduction, Jesus has just presented his own PowerPoint, as it were, of the greatness of his day. Just naming the names, he has painted the picture of ultimate success political, social, and even religious. And, and, and we have here, just within that first two verses, all we need to know about how greatness is defined in that culture and in that time. It's like paging through the who's who list, the makers and the shakers and the great ones laid out on display. But then, Jesus, uh, but then Luke turns it all on his head in verse 2, and he says... The word of God came to John in the desert. Do you catch the irony in that? Because where the secular world has said, here is greatness, here is clout, here is power, here is influence, that is not where God is. He is not in the throne room, he's not in the palace hall, he's not even in the temple. Instead, God reaches past them all, and and his hand extends all the way out into the desert, into an obscure corner of the desert, to take hold of a very simple man named John. Do you find that odd? I do. I, I look at the scene and I see the obvious characters amassing enormous amounts of attention and accumulating all of the wisdom that is relevant to their day, but it's John who gets the call. It's John to whom the word of God comes. What a thought. The thought being that greatness does not naturally flow to big people with big words and big plans. Instead, it belongs and begins with God. And his choice, which often comes to simple people who are simply able to receive what he has to give. And I have to confess, that bothers me a little bit. I've spent my life trying to build a resume. I look at my resume, and you may look at yours, and the good news is there are a measure of accomplishments there. There are letters, there are degrees. But the bad news is that it is quite possible that having collected such accomplishments, the Word of God may be missing. And leaving everything on the page hollow and empty. And it's a humbling thought. But it's one that opens the door to a life of true meaning as to what it means to be great. I was struck struck by a comment made by Esther Duvall as she reflected on the rules of humility that are found in the Benedictine monasteries. Humility, she writes, is facing the truth. It is useful to remind myself that the word comes from humus, humility, humus, which means the earth. 
And in the end, simply means that I allow myself to be earthed in the truth that lets God be God and then frees me to be his creature. (laughs) And if I hold on to this, it helps me prevent me uh, from putting myself at the center. And instead, it allows me to put God at the center and live according to his will. (laughs) And so we read, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah. And then Luke adds three simple words, in the desert. As I searched for John's secret, I wondered to myself, what forces would carve out a greatness of soul? And in thinking that, I had to pause when I come to those three words, the desert. What a wonderful instrument of the carving of character. Throughout the Bible, you will find the desert as being God's chosen place of instruction. For 40 years, Moses was schooled in the desert. Immediately following his conversion, Paul was left to be schooled where? In a desert place. True, the the desert was also a desolate, lonely, dangerous wilderness filled with wild beasts and poisonous vermin, Even Moses calls it that way. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, he says, it's a great and terrible place, this wilderness. But it was also the place where God chose to teach lessons that would go deep into the soul. And I don't know the history, but it is evident that early in his story, God had had drawn John away from the crowds and thrust him out into the desert. There, to polish his senses and shape him as a vessel who would be worthy to carry forward the word of God and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so I wonder, what is it about the desert that would do that to a man? Well, first, the desert is a place of silence. There is no intrusion of noise to distract you. Just stillness, broken only by the sounds of creation There is an ancient Arab proverb that reads, the further you go into the desert, the closer you come to God. (laughs) We read in the Bible that that, that, that even though God is capable of expressing himself with thunder, the fact is he often speaks with a still, small voice. And I suppose it's no surprise that it requires stillness to be able to hear him. We read that in the Psalms, Psalm 46. Be still. And know God. I sometimes wonder why a greatness of soul would be such a rare commodity in our day and age. But then I I, I think of how uncomfortable we tend to be with stillness. It's like we're, we're, we're stricken with hyperactivity. And I'll confess my part in it as well. When I get up in the morning, I turn on the radio. When I'm alone, I play music. When I'm idle, I watch TV. I, I surround myself with noise and I find silence to be disturbing and awkward. And some of you know what that's like. You may go on a a retreat and then you're told to go off for just an hour to pray. What happens? If you're like me, it takes about three minutes before you start to look at your watch. An hour? Three minutes have passed by. And, And by five minutes, you're plucking at the blades of grass around you. And 10 minutes later, you've taught yourself how to hold the blades to your mouth to make a whistle. Not that that's ever happened, uh, um, but, but the silence and the stillness, 
It says here, the word of God came to John in the desert, and I suppose it's a mark of a great soul that his senses had been trained and tuned to listen. There's a wonderful moment in a play about Joan of Arc written by George Bernard Shaw where the king of France confronts the simple girl and frustrated by her calm confidence this, and, and heavenly insight, the, the king in frustration finally yells out, he says, oh, your voices, your voices, why don't those voices ever come to me? I am king, you know. And in response... Simple Joan of Arc looks at him and says, they do come to you, but you do not hear them. You have not sat in a field in the evening listening for them. And when the bells ring, you cross yourself and have done with it. But if you prayed from your heart and listened to the trilling of the bells in the air after they had stopped ringing, you would hear the voices as well as I do. How are you with silence? How tuned are your senses that are able to detect and hear the still, small voice of God? There's a second lesson that that comes from the desert. For the desert is a place where one is schooled in the discipline of reliance. It is not a natural environment to sustain life. It is a place of rocks rather than water and of sand rather than vegetation. And people go to the desert, learn very quickly that they find themselves beyond themselves. Everything that they take for granted, their natural talents and their abilities, everything their natural strengths would supply becomes rapidly depleted. For us, the desert may not be a place of rock and sand, but but you'll know when you are in your own desert because it is a place of pain and of defeat and of dryness where your circumstances, your environment quickly prove that you are not wise enough and you are not smart enough and you are not whole enough to stand. Some of you may be there right now. Some of you may have been lingering in a desert of of, of your own and, and I trust that my words don't add to that moment because in fact when you are there you find yourself fragile and at risk and you may wonder What possible good could come from this time and from this place? But it is in the desert that people would go to fast, not to prove their strength, but to learn the sort of lesson that Jesus revealed in his own desert moment when tempted by Satan, he responded by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the Father, the word of God. And we read, the word of God came to John in the desert. And I have to think that John had learned the the lesson, the Jesus lesson, that his only hope was to live in utter dependence upon the grace and the love and the spirit of God. It's a lesson of reliance that matches God's purpose to raise us up as a man or a woman of greatness of soul. I love the way the former president of uh, Wheaton College, Raymond Edmond, put it in his poem. As a student, you know, I remember reading this on a little plaque in, 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 in the halls. It was called The Disciplines of Life, and, and here's what he wrote. He said, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, 
When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts them and with mighty blows converts them into trial shapes of clay that only God understands. And while their saddened hearts are crying, they lift beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when their good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with mighty acts induces them to try his splendor out. God knows what he's all about. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill him, man, watch his methods, watch his ways. Those three words, in the desert, Reveal the the shaping of a soul through a lesson of silence, through a lesson of reliance, and then one more lesson in that school of the desert, a lesson of persistence. There is something about the desert that strips away (laughs) the irrelevant and the unnecessary. (laughs) There is no allowance for style or fashion in the desert. It is not a place of pretension, but as a place of utter simplicity and focused truth. It is not a stage for for a reality show. It is reality. (laughs) And it's no surprise then when John the Baptist is introduced in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 6, he comes out of the desert and he appears wearing clothing made of a camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, living on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Yuck. No slave to fashion here. (laughs) Just someone utterly focused around a single passion. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I have to admit, I am really impressed by that because he knew what he was all about and that is all that mattered. He had a message to give and he gave it. The intentions of that message could be summed up in one word. Repent. 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 And you've got to admit, that's not the most positive message. The fact is, if you want to launch a movement, the conventional wisdom says, make people feel good about themselves. Talk to them about success. But John had no time for that. He simply knew for the kingdom to be established, people needed to come to grips with who they were and how far off track they are. And sure, it was confrontational. Sure, it was blunt. But it was true, and it cut straight to the heart. Because it was the word of God being delivered by a man of God. Our world... Your world, our world altogether needs men and women of God. And you can be that person. Jesus said, even, in the, even the least in the kingdom of heaven has the potential of being greater than John himself. But it takes a heart of decision and a life of initiative. Henry Nouwen put it well in his book, The Way of the Heart. He says, precisely because our secular milieu offers us so few spiritual disciplines, we have to develop our own. We have indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, and dwell in the gentle healing presence of our God. 
Where will you go to find God? Better yet, where in your world will the Word of God find you? Is that space to be had? Ten years ago, I was utterly fascinated by a story that came out of California. Four years earlier, in 2001, John Marler climbed a mountain to the gates of St. Herman of Alaska Monastery in Plantina, California, a desert area. At the age of 19, he was already weary of life. He had been the guitarist in two successful punk rock bands, Sleep and Paxton Quigley. I've never heard of them, but uh, I don't follow punk. But somehow he had found faith in Christ and was desperate to find a way to bring some hope into the punk subculture he had escaped. A community of kids who were crippled by nihilism and despair. And so he came to the monastery and knocked on the doors and the monks of the monastery didn't quite know what to do with him. This guy who was all tatted up with piercings. And so they decided to make him a monk as well. <laughs> and And soon the monastery then began to attract kids from the nearby town of Chino and some as far away as Los Angeles. And the community began to grow simply through the power of the reality and the love for the lost. And one of the monks, Brother uh, Piousius, I guess, I'm stumbling over words, he explained it this way. He said, this subculture is raucous and deeply disturbed because it's because of its own pain, it's demonic, and they're, 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 they're living in hell, overdosing on drugs, and maybe going into a rage and killing someone because they see life as worthless. We want to show them an ideal that is worth their life. Well, the idea is very, very simple. The monastery has no electricity, phone, or running water. The monks live in the midst of rattlesnakes and scorpions and log huts. They construct themselves. They raise vegetables, chopping wood in utter simplicity. But, oh, they do have something more. Several years ago, they decided to produce a zine, an odd punk-style publication, which they entitled Death to the World. (laughs) And the cover of the last issue... Uh, the, I mean, I'm sorry, the first issue showed a picture of a white-bearded monk holding a skull with the caption, the last true rebellion is death to the world, to be crucified to the world and the world to us. <laughs> I imagine that would appeal to the punk culture really well. And one of the brothers described the impact. He said, the kids come and they are sick of themselves. They feel out of place in this world, but we opened up to them the beauty of God's creation and we invite them to put to death the passions, which is what we mean by the world. God takes their despair and he turns it around into something positive. Selfish passions can be redirected into the love for God. We talk about the idea of suffering because that is what the kids feel most strongly. And we show them that there can be meaning in their suffering. And on the back of the cover of that magazine or that zine is the picture of Jesus with a caption, his arms opened wide. He says, they hated me without cause too. But his arms are opened wide saying, come to me. Come to me. And there is a unique sense of power that comes spoken through the word of God, expressed through the open arms of Jesus Christ that that, that resonates with a soul attuned to great dimensions. Put them all together. 
and you find someone who is able to take a stand in the world and say, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand, and it will make a difference. It will change the course of human life. It will change you. What sort of man or woman is God making out of you right now? You have it in you to be great. That's the promise of the scripture, simply because God has it in mind that you become his. So you have to ask these questions. They're up there for you. God speaks to your heart. Can you hear him? God shapes your character. Will you trust him? And God invites you to be his partner. Will you serve him?